0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Kotton, executive producer of Deep State Radio. Your support makes it possible to continue to bring you the expert analysis and opinion that you've come to depend on. We've recently introduced two additional benefits available exclusively to members. On Mondays and Thursdays, Members can listen to additional bonus content in the podcast. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, members can read Notes from the Sub Basement, our new members-only briefing featuring written opinion and analysis from host David Rothkopf. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code OctoberLaunch for a 10% discount at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember. Thank you and enjoy the episode.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, because it's Thursday when we're recording this. Of course, my co-host is Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, formerly of the Obama administration, practicing physician, coming from Washington, D.C., I think. Is that correct, Kavita? That's
0: right. Where all great things, well, great ideas go to die. and. <laughs> get up to get subject to the Senate Parliamentarian.
2: <laughs> that's a that's a podcast name for you. There, uh, also coming to us from Washington D.C., we have David Corn of Mother Jones. Our friend David also publishes a newsletter called This Land, uh, which you can find at Davidcorn.com. dot com. How are you today, David? I'm great. I'm not worrying about the Senate Parliamentarian. Yeah, well, that, that puts you uh, ahead of an, a number of key people in Washington. And joining us today, also for the first time, Jonathan Alter, MSNBC commentator, uh, filmmaker, author, author of the book, His Very Best, A uh, Life of Jimmy Carter, and has himself a newsletter called Old Goats Ruminating, which you can find at oldgoats at substack.com. How are you today, Jonathan?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks for the plug.
4: I want to know what branding expert gave you the name for that newsletter, Jonathan. It's so
3: compelling. Ralph Nader is the only one of all the people I've interviewed so far who didn't want to be called an old goat. <laughs> uh, but um, you know what? It, it uh, Some other people disagree, David. What can I tell you? They, <laughs> they like the idea of listening to old goats from a lot of different Backgrounds who have something to say. So just because they're a little, little older than uh, 60, you know, doesn't mean they're ready to be put out to pasture, right? Well, that's where you find goats. <laughs> that wh-
2: <laughs> well, well this is the first podcast we've devoted the entire amount of time to promoting people's stuff we hope we've run out of time now thanks very much. <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us uh, yeah someday jonathan you may have competition because don bear our, my friend on a regular basis tells me we should start a podcast called alta cocker's which would be right. directly in your lane. Yes, it would be. Uh,
3: <laughs> I actually had a little feature called Alter Cocker's early on in the newsletter, but um, I, I put it to rest. But yeah, that's the basic idea. Alter Cocker's tend to be men, so I just interviewed Susie Essman from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I haven't posted that one yet, but we're you know we're, we want to do all, all different kinds of people.
2: Uh, yeah, well, that should be very, that should be very um, entertaining. Uh, Speaking of uh, entertaining, we could use some uplift, given that on Tuesday, the election results were kind of disconcerting. And the first thing I want to do is go around to everybody to see whether they're in the category of the sky is falling crowd who believes that it was a huge disaster with grievous implications for 2022 and beyond, or whether you're in perhaps a different crowd that thinks that this was... Perhaps overblown. Let me start with you, Jonathan. It was clearly a
3: terrible night for Democrats. I don't think it has any implications for 2024, which is three years away, and that's a complete eternity in politics. But I do think it makes it very difficult for the Democrats to hold the House next year. Uh, They're just in too deep of a hole, and the history is too much against them. The physics of American politics are such that only twice in the last 90 years has the uh, president's party been able to pick up seats in the House in the first midterm election. And uh, Nancy Pelosi only has a five vote margin. The average loss is 20 seats. And I I find it hard to believe, after what we learned, that she's going to be speaker come uh, 2023.
2: Yeah, particularly if she's not still in the Congress, which we don't know. We don't know if she'll, she'll right. still be around. David, what what was your take? I'm not sure the sky's falling, but it certainly
4: is on fire. You know, there are a lot of disconcerting things about what happened in Virginia and the fact that it was so close in New Jersey. Particularly, you know, we've just gone through you know four years of Trump as president. And even if you want to take away the first three, he ended up overseeing a pandemic with 400,000 plus preventable deaths preventable deaths that could have been done differently we ended up of course with the insurrection and you know the fact that you know the republican party is not discredited from any of that is a sign that in our tribalized political context you really can't do too much to convince people to jump ship or even Abandon ship and just not stay true to their tribe. So I think, you know, we looked at the exit polls, the electorate uh, in Virginia was uh, was split 46 46 in terms of Trump and Biden supporters. So the the Trump people are still out there. They were a majority by a few points or maybe half a point in Virginia. And so it's as if the last four or five years, particularly the last year and two, haven't happened. And so I don't know how the public proceeds if we have large blocks of voters who are still enthralled with Trump, still either immune or in love with his lies and think that he was a fine president. And so the Democrats, you know, tried to run on that and make that the issue. It's kind of all that Terry McAuliffe talked about. And it had no real impact particularly in the light of the suburban anger over the imaginary moral panic of um, critical race theory, you know, non, non-crisis. So I think there are just a lot of lessons to learn here, and not many have, have easy fixes. It's not just like you should be more progressive or, we, or McAuliffe should have this type of messaging. There are some deep-rooted problems we face as a, as a democratic community. Uh, they ain't going to be solved
3: by the midterm elections. David, I, I, there's a couple of things that I would amend to that. I agree that the big lesson of the night was there was no brand damage to the GOP and the Trump stink did not spread. We already knew that uh, in some ways from 2020, because I remember uh, the Republican congressional candidates did much better than or a little bit better than Trump. And so we already knew that Republican voters who did not like Trump were distinguishing him from other Republicans who they could continue to support. But that became a gaping gap this time around. And so Youngkin led Trump's uh, 2020 Results in Virginia by nine points. And Chittorelli led Trump's 2020 returns by nine points. And Youngkin led them by six points. That is huge. That is a ton of distance between other Republicans and Donald Trump. And it gives you some sense of how many people in the suburbs who voted for Joe Biden. We're now perfectly willing to vote for these other Republican candidates. Let me throw one fact in here to amend your
4: amendment. And if you, you look at independents in Virginia, yeah. Biden won them by, I think, 18 points last year. Yunkin won, won them by nine points. Yeah. That's a 27 percent swing. These are the people right. you know, that you're talking about. It's not just it's a, it's
3: it's amazing. The point that I wanted to make is that this leaves Trump weaker. For 2024, because it basically offers Republicans who have their heads screwed on right. And remember, even though 86% of Republicans still support Trump, if you look at the intensity of their support, his hardcore MAGA base is smaller than you might think. There are a lot of people who reluctantly voted for him because he was the Republican candidate and was the president, and they hate Democrats they grew less fond of him after January 6th. So I want to introduce into this discussion, I know you think I might be crazy here, the idea that he does not have the Republican nomination sewn up, and that if a a Glenn Youngkin-type candidate could get him one-on-one, he wouldn't necessarily win, in part because there are 16 states with open primaries and large numbers of the independents that you just mentioned, and even some Democrats who want to do anything they can to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president again, would cross over and vote in that Republican primary for whomever got him one-on-one. I think the gap that we're talking about, David, is problematic for Trump, even though there are other top-line lessons coming out of this election.
0: So, Kavita, I'd love to
2: hear your uh, take on this,
0: yeah, I'll just, I'll be brief. I'm going to make, since I'm the doctor in the group, prescribing privileges. So you're all doctors in your in your domains. I, I've actually made this analogy of how everybody, not, not us, because we're smarter, but everybody's trying to kind of say, well, this was about education as a priority. This was about X or Y or Glenn Youngkin not being a Trump Republican. I think it's a lot like patients with cancer. There's no one exact one cancer is very different from the other, even if it's the same body part. And I think that this is what we're seeing play out. I've talked to some of the women, the women kind of demographic that was helpful in swinging some of these votes from D to R, et cetera. Women of color said that they actually, you know, kind of even would hold their breath and vote for Terry McAuliffe. But they found that even Hala Ayala, you'd think a Latina woman who could be somewhat decent on the ticket because nobody usually cares about who else is on the ticket, but that that would actually play to a strength But that even she didn't like really go out of her way to like mobilize some of these women and kind of show how she was working for them. All the way to people who really were kind of pissed off about school closures and felt like Glenn Youngkin actually had just a better way of laying out like this is how we're going to have schools stay open and here's what's going to happen and A to B to C and And it wasn't about abortion and it wasn't about some of the things that the very same women, mostly kind of women of color in Northern Virginia, who always voted Democratic, but the ones that didn't said, yeah, look, I'm not worried about Glenn Youngkin kind of doing bad things on abortion because I'm more worried about being able to send my kids to school. I'm not going to get an abortion. And I thought that was just like a very profound kind of It's not one thing, it's many things. And I agree with kind of the meta commentary, not Facebook, but the meta meta commentary that this isn't doom and disaster for Democrats, unless we kind of figure out how to go back to the very principles that do resonate with the largest demographic uh, audience that should be attended to, which is women. So it was relief to me to see at least this kind of language around paid family leave and some of the things being included, back. And then my question, we don't have to get to it now, David, I'll let you kind of moderate. I would love to know if either Jonathan or David, if you believe, or each of you, what your reaction to the commentary that, well, if we had had the BBB or BIF passed earlier and and Terry McAuliffe could have campaigned on that, this could have been different. I'm not so sure about that, but it'd be interesting to hear your take. One thought
4: about what Jonathan said before I answer the question about whether, you know, how Trump might do in a 2024 election and what this shows, your theoretical analysis is correct. This shows there is a hunger on the Republican side for a non-Trump Republican. But again, if you get into a situation like in 2016, where it's Trump and any more than one other Republican, you know, the base and the penalty, the base will be there for him. And the penalty for defying him, for running against him, will be so high amongst, you know, a significant part of the Republican bloc that it's going to be quite difficult, I think, for for, for Republicans to to challenge him. It's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a very awful and difficult dynamic. And Youngkin threaded the needle. He took the Trump support with maintaining some distance and not acting like Trump. And that was fine with Trump not being in the race. Trump in the race. And I think that that changes a bit. But, you know, in terms of the the argument that BBB or BIF or BCA, whatever, had passed, it would have made it easier for McAuliffe. I don't really think so. I mean, I think maybe it wouldn't have hurt. Right. And maybe we'd gotten some votes. But I see one of the big differences here being an anger gap. The people were angry. You know, the Republican voters were angry. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. You know, they were angry about critical race theory, which is bullshit. They're angry about the schools, which is not bullshit. Although I think you know the anti-vaxxers and the anti-mask people, you know, are irrational. And then their their anger is not you know it's is sort of falsely generated or it's real anger, but it's not based on facts. On the Democratic side, I didn't see much passion. People might you know Trump wasn't running. Terry tried to get them to be angry about Trump running when he wasn't running, and when you have this irrational anger being generated by Fox News, by, you know, Steve Bannon and everybody else out there. I don't know if the Democrats coming along and saying, hey, we're going to give you paid leave or, hey, we're going to give you universal pre-K, you know, oh, hey, we're going to protect repo rights. I don't think that addresses that. Maybe it works with some independents, but it doesn't address the energy going into the campaign. So I think the, the Democrats have a long term problem here about how to deal with one side that has an echo chamber that's very effective, and that is, you know, fueling tremendous, tremendous anger that now has seeped into those suburban
3: areas that tend to be the defining territory for a lot of close races. So uh, just on the first thing, I don't want to dwell too much on Trump. The idea that the base is motivated By love of Trump more than wanting to own the libs and being angry at liberals and, quote, socialists, I would reject. I think it's the latter. I think that's what motivates them. The best way to own the libs in 2024 is to nominate somebody (laughs) other than Trump, especially when they see, let's just assume, and I'm not sure he will be, but let's assume that Biden is the Democratic nominee. And if they see Biden crushing Trump in polls and Biden losing to candidate X who is not Trump a tremendous number of them will happily go to candidate X in the same way that they you know happily went to Glenn Youngkin even though he was pretty clearly telling Trump not to come into Virginia on the latter point i think there's an anger gap i also think there's a communications gap you mentioned the 400,000 people who died unnecessarily Maybe Terry McAuliffe was you know, launching some Clinton era type retread toned shots at Trump. But I didn't see a clear message from the Democratic Party that this get, this guy basically and people like Ron DeSantis, you know, led to the uh, unnecessary deaths of 400000 Americans. That was never argued by the Democrats. Why? Because they need to grow a pair. You know they they just are not they don't understand that this is a contact sport. It's the Lincoln Project, and like one author, Don Winslow, those two are the only sources of hard hitting web ads that have a chance of going viral. Where is the Democratic Party? I mean, this point that in I try to make an historical point is and I wrote a book about Franklin Roosevelt and the idea of Hoovervilles, which was very damaging to Herbert Hoover in the 1932 election, that didn't just like come up out of nowhere. That was the press guy for the Democratic National Committee who got up every morning and he tried to make stuff stick for Herbert Hoover. You should Hoover. tell people what they were for the younger people out there listening. Yeah. Hoovervilles and not the young goats. These, these shanties in, in parks across the country where homeless people were living during the depths of the depression. And so what the DNC did was it it stapled Herbert Hoover to those Hoovervilles. Now, they had failed several times before that to try to stigmatize them. They tried to create Hoover carts, which were, you know, model T's that didn't have an engine and were pulled by a goat, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Uh, and they, they tried to, uh, you know, they tried a bunch of different ways. they threw a bunch of stuff against the wall. How can we take Hoover down? Hoover was doing pretty well in the polls. There were a lot of people in the summer of 1932 who thought he would be reelected. And yet, because you had this guy named Charlie Mickelson, and they called him the ghost, he took it upon himself. I'm going to take out Herbert Hoover. But the important point is he worked for the Democratic National Committee The party was willing to play hardball. Today's DNC is not. For whatever reason, there is a serious toughness gap that uh, is really disadvantaging Democrats.
1: Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash DSR survey 2021. That's bit.ly slash DSR survey 2021. Now back to the show.
2: Okay, so let me pick up with that. If you had Joe Biden for five minutes, what's the advice you would give him about minimizing losses or actually achieving gains in 2022? Does he need to revitalize the DNC? By the way, I, you know, I agree. I think the DNC is non-existent as a factor. Does he need to learn the lesson of not picking crappy candidates? Jonathan referred to Terry McAuliffe as a Clinton retread, speaking as a Clinton retread. I agree. And I think we could do without that. But what else could he do? What else could the Democrats do? What should they do? Uh, and I'm going to stipulate for the moment that some point in the next couple of weeks, these two bills are going to get passed and that we're going to end up with Joe Biden having a first year in which he passes five trillion dollars in legislation, kind of unprecedented level, creates five million jobs, has something to run on. Kavita, what's your advice for the president and the party and then David and then Joe? All
0: right. I'm going to stick to my lane. So five minutes of advice. I'm going to Keep it simple, stupid. The Joe Biden I worked for in the Obama White House needs to come back again, where he really did use language that middle class people who are writing in Amtrak could understand. Even watching his speech at the G20 almost made me fall asleep because I think there's just so much now choreography of fitting this in, fitting that in. And it's completely lost on people. And just to then stick to President Biden, you need to emphasize how many lives you have not only saved, but how many lives you have saved, how many schools you're going to keep open, kept open. And then number three, how universal pre-K, paid family leave, all these things that resonate to every human I can imagine. Those three things need to be packaged in simple messaging, and you need to go out and take that on the road and go be you. I I think that we're seeing less and less of the Joe Biden that we used to be assigned when I worked for the president. We used to be assigned to try to mitigate, you know, don't let the vice president go off cue. We couldn't script him. I actually think we need to see a little more of that. And I saw it in the primaries and don't see it now.
2: David?
4: I think I need more time to figure this one out because I think it's actually a very, very difficult situation and a hard question you're posing. Trying to think in big terms first and then get down to the details. To me, I think he needs to inspire a sense of fight. A little bit to what I said earlier about an anger gap and what Jonathan said about growing a pair. I, there needs to be a sense of fight. What's at stake? What the other side is, defining the enemy, decide. You know, if you just tell people, I've done these great things for you, okay, well, what have you, what, what have you done for me lately? I mean, okay, you did that. I'm not sure people vote to reward people. I think they vote or they they're mobilized because they feel a sense of fight. There's something that they either want to get or they want to stop from happening. And so, how do you do that? You don't do it by having press avails at daycare centers to say, oh, look at what the great daycare center we have here because of my bill. I don't think that stuff works. It makes some nice pictures. I don't think it it hits any of the points that you need to hit. I think, you know, again, I'll steal John's point a little bit. I think you need a $50 million campaign to figure out where these points of of confrontation are and how to get them on your side or how to create them for, for your benefit. I think he needs to identify the stakes here in terms of the you know the war on democracy, or you know, find a way, like if another pandemic comes back, do you want 400,000 other Americans to die? And Kavita, with all due respect, I mean, I, I've always liked him. You know, I've interviewed him for books. He's always been very kind and supportive to me. I don't think he has it in him to sort of do it on his own these days. You know, go back to the Joe Biden of, of the Obama years and and speak from the heart and not be scripted you know that's all great but that doesn't carry the burden as much these days i, I just don't think his performance level is dependable or or intense in, enough to to do that so it has to be a, a wider deeper communications effort in which they're also jamming the republicans i'll just make this the final point here you know okay paid leaves not in the bill because of Joe Manchin being Joe Manchin, no, it's not in the bill because fifty Republicans also won't vote for it. So I want you know to turn around as soon as these bills are passed, put a paid family leave bill on the floor of the Senate as soon as you can. I know it takes weeks to get things there, and make them vote against it. Make them vote against having hearing aids and vision and dental benefits. Make you know say we're going to jam you again and again and again, and
3: and make these big fights, and you know get Don Winslow to cut ads. Just picking up on that, not, not only make them vote against it, paid family leave, but jam it through under reconciliation. So if it passes muster with the parliamentarian to be part of this reconciliation bill, you could introduce a standalone paid family leave and uh, maybe pick off Murkowski or one or two others and actually make it become law without Joe Manchin. And if that there's the filibuster,
4: remember, there's a filibuster. I'm
3: going to address that in a second. First of all, I just made the point with family and medical leave. If it could be in this bill that we're talking about right now, it can be put through through reconciliation and the parliamentarian in an extraordinarily important and little covered ruling earlier this year. Chuck Schumer certainly noticed it. Said that you can do reconciliation more than once every yep. fiscal year. So they can anything that passes muster for reconciliation, anything that relates to taxing and spending, which family and medical leave does, or wouldn't have been scored in the bill, they can get through with reconciliation. Now let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say that Murkowski or whatever they can't pick off then they should make them filibuster it. And by making them filibuster it, what I mean is changing to a talking filibuster. The filibuster issue has been seen as a binary choice, either eliminate the filibuster or keep it. And it drives me crazy that the press always reports it this way. There are two other options. One is carve-out, which we have for judges, Supreme Court justices, and executive branch appointments. It doesn't look like there are the votes for a carve out because Manchin and maybe one or two others are against it. There are definitely not the votes to eliminate the filibuster. That's simply not going to happen. But it may be, and Manchin has given some indications that he would return to a Jimmy Stewart filibuster, restore the old filibuster. Now, what happens if you do that? Then you have, especially if the rule is designed, as Norm Ornstein recommends, You have to make it germane, all of the things you talk about on the floor germane. And you flip the script so that instead of 60 to break the filibuster, you need 41 to prevent a vote, 41 to prevent a majoritarian floor vote. So that means the Republicans would have to have 41 on the floor 24-7 for days and weeks on end. Now, Al Franken tells me they simply can't do it. Their their people are too old. By the way, the Democrats only need 11 on the floor for a quorum. The Republicans would need 41 on the floor at all times. Al says it would only last less than a day. I think it would last a few weeks. And actually, the filibuster of these voting rights bills would be a very healthy education for the country because the Republicans would be having to defend making it harder to vote, whereas the Democrats would be arguing to make it easier to vote and that's like an 80-20 issue. Even if it was an education on family leave, an education on uh, guns, whatever the issue is, these are issues where Democrats have the advantage. So a talking filibuster, yes, it would tie up the Senate. That's always been one of the excuses. But what's so bad about that? Let's tie up the Senate for three yep. or four weeks talking about these issues. And I think that's how the Democrats should spend the next six months after these two bills are passed is in a series of uh, filibusters, most of which they would win. They got
4: to do something unconventional. They need to be imaginative, unconventional. They need to grab the imagination of people who don't pay attention to this. And they need to create that sense of fight, that they're fighting back, they're fighting back, and they're redefining politics. Right. That's what they have to do. And Again, with all due respect, I don't think that's Joe Biden's strong suit. You'd have to lead this in, in a way. But, you know, Democrats could do that on their own. But the Republicans, the Republicans have demonstrated, even just by electing Trump, that they're willing to do things differently. They're willing to break things. They're willing to sort of break the mold and not stick by rules. Now, I'm not saying that we should violate rules or the Democrats should violate rules, but they've shown the ability to, you know, I hate the, the cliche, to think outside the box. And the Democrats just keep, you know,
3: like, you listen to Manchin, listen to Biden we think we can make the Senate work. Yeah, but but if you you, you got to try to make it work. And and yeah. by the way, this wouldn't be Biden who would be breaking these filibusters. It would be people like Chris Murphy. You know, you'd yeah, have, I know. That'd be great. Cases, that would be really good. Now, in terms of your other point, which I totally agree with of, of getting tougher. Look, Jen Psaki is a terrific press secretary and Kate Bedingfield is a, a competent communications director, but they are Operating off of an old script. And the Democrats have the whole creative community at their disposal. They're all Democrats. You remember what Reagan did in 1984, where he, he brought in Hal Riney, who was this brilliant Madison Avenue guy, and, and they designed this. You know, these guys didn't know very much about politics, and all the old Republican hands were saying, well, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And they decided we're going to do Madison Avenue, state-of-the-art advertising, and it was very helpful. It also helped that Carter's pointy Paul Volcker ended inflation. But you know, the, the the communications piece was a very important part of Reagan's landslide victory, and it can be an important part of the Democrats' comeback if they reach out and tap into all these people in the creative community who are just wringing their hands. Instead of wringing their hands, they should be you know ringing some bells like just using their skills to come up with a bunch of stuff and the good news here is that you don't have to put a lot of money behind these ads and put them on TV you just see which ones go viral you just put out a whole bunch of web ads and some of them are going to catch on and have like 25 million views and then you know the market is telling you which are the best messages that are are getting through
2: Okay, so as we do, we're going to take a little bit of a break right here so that uh, those of you who are not members can rush to your computer, sign up and become members so you can hear the rest of this podcast. For those of you who are members, we'll be back in one moment with the members only section of this conversation where we'll begin with a question from Dr. Kavita Patel.